Thanks for listening to another life-transforming message from the team here at C3 Southwest Washington. To find out more about our church, visit c3swwa.com. It's great to be in God's house, right? Look at the person next to you and say, hey, you look pretty good. Dave, Dave is standing by himself. He's like, it's all about me right now. I'm looking good. Uh, if, we're, if we're an airplane, we're listing this way, but my hat's off to you guys on this side. I know we've got a bunch of family in for graduations and stuff like that. And uh, So give, give all of our guests, our visitors, a big hand. It's great to be in God's house. Um, last week, Father's Day, I was unfortunately at home not feeling well. And uh, I was bummed out because all of our guys were leading the gathering and speaking and praying. And I was online watching it. I knew I couldn't win the Traeger while online. I was kind of bummed out about that. But I wanted to say thank you to our entire team. What a great job last week. I wasn't here, but you guys nailed it, did such a great job. And I just want, from me to you guys, thank you. I appreciate you guys so much. And um, I also wanted to uh, uh, just thank our entire team that works so hard every single week. Uh, this week, we're going to continue and finish up actually in our series entitled Better. And what I've been challenging you to understand, and, and hopefully you already have grasped this, but if you haven't, a walk with Jesus, a life surrendered to Jesus will make every area of your life better. I'm not saying it won't have challenges, but your marriage will be far better if you both follow Jesus. Your business background, your, your ability to earn an honest living will be far advanced as you follow Jesus. You're going to find that there's your health. I mean, I think, honestly, your countenance, your smile. You, you, a man who's forgiven, who's experienced the favor of God, walks around with a bounce in his step and a smile on his face. You just literally look better. Help me out a little here. Okay. Uh, today, I want to challenge you with a thought uh, we find in Scripture, a, the shortest verse in the Bible, uh, at least in the English, in the, in the Greek, it's actually the second shortest uh, verse in the Bible, but just really simply says, Jesus wept. We joke about this verse an awful lot, but this is a verse that captures a moment in time where Jesus had a close friend who died. And the family was in turmoil, and there was all kinds of chaos going on. And the Bible says as Jesus approached the tomb of his friend who died, he, he wept. Um, I don't know how death has impacted your life. I remember as a four-year-old going camping about this time of year, and some of you are going camping or coming back from camping. We were going to a place in Granville, Massachusetts, that as you pulled in, there was a giant monument on the side of the road. And my family wanted to get out of the car and take a picture next to it. And as we're walking up to the monument, they began to reveal to me that this monument was erected there in memory of a little boy who was driving a wagon, that the wagon took a tumble down the hill and killed him and his animal as it went down the hill. And as a four-year-old, that symbol terrified me because if somebody else died there, what's gonna happen to me when I go stand next to this monument? So I had one of those childhood meltdowns because I didn't understand what was going on. And certainly over the years, there's been some actual moments of people in my life dying. I've had uh, you know, an aunt who died at the hands of a family member. 
I've got other family members who tragically have taken their own lives. I've had grandparents who have all now passed away. There's been moments where, a moment in my life as a 18 year old where I was in a traffic accident and ejected from the car. And I don't know how long went by, we were out in the middle of the woods and it was not until the paramedics showed up that I woke up in the wintertime out in the snow in the middle of this field while they were working to extract my best friend who was in the passenger seat. Death has visited us all, no doubt. But my prayer today is that after we take a look at the scripture, as we look at this experience that Jesus has, that you have a better understanding of death, of what it is and what it isn't and how it impacts us and how it impacts the kingdom of God. If you've had a tragedy that's hit your world, that's rocked you, that's left you standing back saying, God, why did you allow that to happen? Why did you take them? And it's put maybe a, a, um, a, a sliver in your soul and has caused some infection and has caused some struggle. Maybe during COVID, somebody you know and somebody you love passed away. We've all probably experienced that in this last season. I want to challenge you to grab a hold of what scripture says about death and navigate forward, to look in your rearview mirror and understand what has happened in the context of scripture and how God sees it and also navigate forward, okay? All right, Father, we thank you so much this morning for your word. I thank you, God, for the truths that are in scripture. Father, help us to align our lives to your word. God, help me to share a difficult topic, but should be very encouraging and, and, and maybe some illumination of, of how things actually are that maybe we've misunderstood. Lord, I pray for your help. I pray for your touch. I ask you to bless these people. Help them to live abundantly while they're alive. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. High five the person next to you. And, uh, and you'll also notice up on the screen there's a QR code. Um, today, my title of my message is Better Death. It is, we've talked about better life, we've talked about better friends, better all sorts of different things, and today we're going to finish up with better death. The QR code is, if, you, if you're following along, you want a, a copy of the notes, there's a copy available on our G drive for you. It also really challenge you to take uh, any message that's preached on a Sunday, take it with you during the week. It's hopefully God speaking to you, there's something for you to grab onto, to apply to your life. And spend time talking with your family about it. Grab a specific evening every day during, or every week and talk about what was, what was touched upon and how it impacts you and how you believe it needs to be applied to your family. Because you don't want to turn church into coming in here in a message and, woohoo, that was great, and then heading out. Because God, ultimately, when we come together, he's here and he's, he's got truths that he wants to not just speak to you, but to impart to your life to help you as you follow after him. Amen? Come on, we're going to participation Sunday. Amen? amen? Say it like amen means yes. So it should never be amen. It should be amen. amen. Yes. Okay, I'm excited. Anyways, all right, let's jump in here. Uh, in this verse, to, to go back and take a look, a little bit of a view at this portion of Scripture that surrounds the shortest verse, Jesus wept. Uh, John chapter 11, verses 1 through 3 and 5 through 6, the Bible says there, now a certain man was ill. Just stop there for a second. That is a not good thing. That is a thing that's actually contrary to the heart of God and God's plan for all of us. Illness was never, never intended to be a part of our experience. 
And yet very much it is a real part of our everyday living. It's really moved to the forefront in these last couple of years especially and way out of, out of scale in my opinion. But the reality is there are things that happen to good people and part of it could be sickness. In this case, Lazarus is, a, is an unusual character in Scripture. He's a very, very, very close friend of Jesus. And that kind of rubs against the grain because we think, well, if I walk with Jesus, then I'm never going to have an issue. I'm never going to have a challenge. We know that's not true. We say it all the time. Jesus said it. In this world, you will have what? Trouble. It doesn't mean that's a destination. You're going to have to navigate through it. Leslie was talking this morning about, about suffering, and it's the heart of God is not for you to suffer. The heart of God is for you to navigate through suffering, to grab onto the thing that's on the other side of suffering, the goal, the accomplishment, the perseverance that builds character and strength. But bad things do happen. Now, this young man, Lazarus, lived in Bethany. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they, they show up in Scripture as well. But another thing that's fascinating about this young man is as a young man and as a follower of Jesus, he is extremely rich, filthy rich in today's terms. He's able to throw banquets for the entire community and not even blink. In fact, one of his sisters, was she was the one who she came to anoint Jesus with perfume, and she dropped on his on his feet, $50,000, actually, it's probably in today's market, actually up to about $75,000 worth of perfume just on his feet. I don't know about you, but I don't have $75,000 in perfume anyplace. If I had $75,000 worth of something, it would not be in a little tiny jar of smell good. It would be something big out in the garage or out in the backyard, right? Something cool, not a jar of perfume. But this is of the smallest things, and this is how wealthy this family is. Let me say this. Money does not make God nervous. Poverty is not a sign of spirituality. It's just not. I don't know why we put it in our world where we want to equate poverty, like if I were to give everything away, somehow that would make me more spiritual. No, the reality is if maybe if you are in love with money, that would help you out but it's also going to make you more broken. It's going to be hard to fill up your car with gas. God's not nervous about money. Money's not a sign of necessarily of, of just God's favor, but it is a value. God provides for us, gives us the ability, the Bible says, to gain or acquire wealth. And this particular young man was doing great. I, I pray that you prosper. I pray that you do well. I don't know why everybody is so... Uh, down on the word prosperity. Do you know that anytime God answers a single prayer of yours, he has prospered you? If you don't believe in prosperity, stop praying. Prosperity isn't about having so much money that it's tipping over in the closet, but when God adds something to your life, he's prospering you. I mean, that's Jesus said, I came that you might have abundant life. In other words, the life that you're living is not abundant. I want to add something in there. And it's not just money. It would maybe include some money, but relationships and health and strength, wisdom. And so there's an impartation of, of wealth in all different areas in our lives. This young man just happened to be extremely rich. And he was a close friend of Jesus. In fact, as you read through the scripture, when he becomes ill, the sisters send the message to Jesus, who is in a different town, and they say this, Lord he whom you love is ill. 
Like there was a special affection between, an appropriate special affection between these two men. I mean, I think that it's okay in life to have lots of friends, but it's going to be normal, even in the kingdom of God, to have a different level of affinity with different people. And that's okay. You can't, you can only have one bestie. Well, some of you have 25 besties. I'm not sure how that works in the, how words work, but Jesus definitely had a crowd and he had people that he was friendly with, and then he had close, intimate friendships, and he had his disciples. And so this young man was just extremely wealthy, and it impacted his life as he, as he um, pursued after all the good things that God has for us. The Bible says in verse 5 and 6 that after Jesus got the message, he actually stays there for two more days. He doesn't journey right back away to see his friend. Um, part of the reason why was because back in Bethany, Jesus' life was at risk, but also part of the reason is because where Jesus is doing ministry, things are happening. And so sometimes there could be bad things going on over here and good things going on over here, and sometimes you just have to lean into the good thing that's happening. You can't solve all the problems all of the time. And so in verse 17, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus arrives, and at this point when he finally gets back to see his friend, his friend had been dead for four days in a tomb, and the mourning week was in full swing. Because he's such a prominent, wealthy figure in the community, the whole community has come out for mourning. On his property, there's banqueting, but it's somber. People are sad. They've placed Lazarus in a tomb. And there's just this, this devastation that the family's experiencing. A young man robbed of his life early in his days. And the fact that he followed Jesus, how could this happen to one of the most generous disciples that Jesus had? Now, here's something interesting that happens in the scripture that reminds me of many conversations that I have even to this day. John eleven twenty one, Martha, the sister of Lazarus, says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's just lost her brother. And the solution in her mind to death was missing an action. God, why did you let this happen? This is not right. He was too young. This, this time wasn't up. There were things happening in life. Why did you let this happen, Jesus? You're the one that can stop these things. If you're really a loving God, why weren't you here? These are the conversations that I have with people regularly. I met a young man who became a part of our church family, and it's a real apprehension for him to even lean forward and clap his hands, raise his hands. He, he believed in God, but he was pissed off at God. If I, 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 that's not even a strong enough term to say. He was deeply angry with God. The reason why was because when he was younger, he had an adopted sister. His family adopted a young gal. And then his dad became sick and passed away. And he turned and he looked at this young girl, his younger sister, whom he was not prepared for yet in his life to be able to take care of her. And he's like, God, how could you allow this to happen? How could we jump into, to, to, in a sense, rescue her life? And God, now you took her dad away from her. Those were his words. You took her dad away from her. 
been blown away. When I was sick last week, I got to watch a lot of TV, which I don't recommend. It seemed like every show I watched had one of these discussions. It's remarkable how twisted the view is of people passing away and the bad rap that God takes for it. A little boy in one of the programs I was watching, his mom passed away, and the adults began to explain to the little boy that God needed his mommy more in heaven than he needed her here on earth, so he took her away. And I was thinking, like this little boy is looking, saying, God, you needed my mommy more than I do? Don't you have other mommies up there? But this was a way to try to explain to this boy something that's really in a lot of ways unexplainable, and yet the person with the target on their chest is God. You can hear it in Martha's voice. You can see it later in Mary's voice. She says almost the exact same thing. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. <coughs> Excuse me. God gets blamed for death. Even though all the scriptures say, make it very clear, I have come that you may have life and life more abundantly, yet it's remarkable that even in the church at times, how God gets blamed for death. And it really is a bait and switch. I've got children and I've had grandchildren, and I know how it works when you discover that somebody's eaten something that wasn't supposed to get eaten, and then one of the other siblings who's actually guilty will actually cast shade on one of the other siblings to try to get you to look at so-and-so so that you don't look at the source of who is actually to blame. And I think if there's any one excellent weapon wielded against people to create a separation between man and God is over this issue of God's role in death. This moment becomes a real, a real sticking spot because Jesus showed up and loved this family and now their brother has died and if God is to blame, then Jesus is to blame. Why am I gonna follow a Jesus who's killed my brother or who could have saved my brother and didn't save him? And that becomes a very difficult sticking point. Again, my friend, it took him a number of years and some, some, some intense messages and studying scripture to, to discover who actually the author of death is. <clears throat> you know, God gets blamed for people's death because he removes people from the earth by means of death in their mind because somehow heaven gains that person or their time was up, so God took them out of here, or he's got a better plan, and they needed to be removed so his better plan could, get ha could happen. You hear that all the time. Um, I've listened to some really crazy stuff. Uh, one, of, one of the most difficult things to deal with, I think, of all deaths would be uh, someone who has a miscarriage. And it's a reality in the world that we live in, I think, for a lot of reasons, the world that we're in, the foods that we eat, the, the way that we live, the way that we don't take care of ourselves. But I listened to somebody try to explain to somebody who had a miscarriage that, well, we just need to trust God. He's got a better plan. And if there's anything I want to get across to you, God's plan is life. God's plan is life every second of the day, every day that you're on this planet, from the moment of conception to the 
the last breath, there should be a fight for life. And when you and I see situations that include death or death comes our way, there should be something that rises up within us that says, come on, let's fight against this thing because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and the devil came to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. And so he's come to wage war against those things and as his followers, certainly that should be our positioning when we face this. Sometimes God gets blamed for just simply not keeping people alive as if he's lacking of interest or desire, or care or compassion. And yet we see right here in scripture, we read Jesus's response to death. He weeps. The Bible in a couple of the different versions says that he was moved visibly and he, he wept. He didn't, he didn't teary-eye, he didn't mist up. He wept he probably sobbed. This is a human moment. Yes, Jesus was 100% God and 100% human. And the Bible says he set aside his divinity to walk in the, in the footsteps of a man. He experienced death like you and I do, the full gamut of the emotions. His friend died. Why was he, why was he moved that way? Be, because of what it represents. I'll give you a couple points here in just a second. But ultimately, I think that this blame on God for death happens because it's such a heightened moment in people's lives when someone passes, and the enemy loves to take advantage of key moments to bring deception. Moments of deception are, are moments of chaos where something's, I'm not sure what's happening, and a suggestion comes out. And because we're moving so quickly and not sure what's happening, we grab onto that thing and we hold onto it to be true. And in this case, I believe for Mary and Martha and so many people, it's a moment of deception. Jesus, if you had been here, even if Jesus is not there, life can still take place. That blame leads to bitterness that will always steer us away from God and ultimately from anything that leads to God's best in our lives, and the enemy loves to exploit this to the end. John eleven thirty three 33 and 35 when Jesus saw her weeping, he's looking at his, his friend's sister, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, Here, here's that verse, he was deeply moved in his spirit. And what I would, I would suggest to you is in that moment that you experienced loss, when you experienced the passing of a loved one or something unexpected happened, Heaven noticed, and I believe that Jesus weeps in those moments. I believe that the heart of God, when he's around death, experiences death, responds the exact same way. Jesus came so that you would know the heart of the Father. And so Jesus, he's deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and then Jesus wept, the scripture says. And I think he wept for a couple of reasons. Number one, a life was cut short. Number two, a family lost a son, a brother, and they were hurting. He wept because a region lost a righteous leader. Here's a strong young man who's going to lead for many days of his life, positively impacting the community. And now at his absence, a vacuum is created. And we know how that can work sometimes. Often, unrighteousness will fill that chasm. Jesus wept because the kingdom lost an influential leader 
I know what it is to have, have a death in the church. A prominent person who's a phenomenal servant has a phenomenal heart. When you think about the church, they are the church. They're a generous leader. They impact people's lives. And when they pass, there is something that is legitimately lost when that person passes away. Jesus also wept because his close friend died. He wept also because the enemy had struck another triumphant blow. Anytime the enemy is successful, the heart of God is certainly moved by that, as should ours. I also think he wept because no one did anything to fight. Everybody's standing around saying, if God would just show up, and I believe that God is saying, you're here, you're my ambassador, do something about what's happening. So many times tragedy will come our way, and we stand around like, when's God going to show up? God has shown up. He's placed one of his servants on the scene, placed the Holy Spirit within that servant to rise up and say, oh, hold on a second here. Remember Jesus sleeping in the boat, and the storm is raging around, we're going to die, we're going to die. Jesus stands up, and he speaks to the storm, and he says, peace, be still, and the storm goes still, right? Did he do that to show off? No, he did that to teach you and I what to do in the storms of life. Listen, when death starts knocking on the door, the way to pray is not, oh God, please, I hope you'll show up. No, you rise up and you begin to pray scripture over the person who's afflicted. And the Bible says the prayer of faith will set them free, will heal the sick. I love the, the, uh, the testimony about Jaden. I remember when he first came to the church, he was having, when I first met him, he's having some vision issues and he began to describe it. And I'm looking at a 12, 13 year old young man thinking to myself, this ain't right. Is that the heart of God for this kid? Come on, this is not, listen, God didn't breathe him into it. Well, I, God, can, God, can, God can use all things and glorify himself through his blindness. Sure, but God can also glorify himself through the healing so he doesn't go blind. Well, you know, if, sometimes God gets more glory out of somebody being sick than he actually does of healing. In what planet? There's no one that Jesus walked by in Scripture and said, you know, I would heal you, but you're going to glorify me more in your suffering than in your healing. There's nobody who said that. That never happened. Why is that our default? I don't tell you why it's our default, because we're nervous about actually leaning forward and believing God for what the Scripture reveals. Yeah. I remember when we called Jaden out right in front of the church that first night that we found out this, and we prayed over him, and we said, we're believing for your healing in Jesus' name. Well, that's kind of gutsy. What if he didn't get healed? Well, if you don't speak out in faith, then there's not the opportunity to get healed. What did Jesus say when he healed people? He said words. He said, be healed. He didn't send happy thoughts. He didn't know, hey, we'll be praying for you. We're going to go back home and we'll, you know. No, he spoke to the sickness and he said, be healed. Sometimes you got to rise up and fight. And I think one of the reasons why Jesus wept, nobody fought the battle. They just said, oh, I guess it's just God's will for him to die. Sorry, I'm a little bit animated today on this issue. I just, the, the, the passive Christianity that exists in the world today wants to say, well, if it's God's will, it'll happen. No, sometimes God's will doesn't happen. You know why? Because we don't enforce it here on the earth. There's a lot of speeders on I-5 driving right past police officers sometimes. You know why they don't get tickets? Because they don't get pulled over. 
That's just a fundamental fact. They're still speeding. I'm not here to, I, we love police officers. There's no issue there, please. This is not a criticism at all. I'm just saying, if you don't stand up in your authority, you don't stop unrighteousness. And so if you and I don't fight, sometimes the will of God doesn't happen. Our obedience is required. Our participation is required. Jesus already came so that we can have life. Now you and I, we are the enforcers of heaven's will on earth. And that's why we pray. It's why we speak. It's why we fight. It's why we'll pray this week. It's why we're going to pray next week. If you were sick in the, in the service today or you needed a miracle and you didn't come up to get prayed for, ah! Oh, I didn't, you don't actually have to go up front to, to, for God to heal you. No, but Jesus said to a man who had a withered hand, stretch forth your hand. Why did he say that? He didn't need to stretch forth his hand. Jesus just could have gone, and he would have been fine. But then God is our great big slot machine in heaven shooting out coins into our life, and we are just recipients of his goodness, not participants in his kingdom. You and I, the reason why we participate, why do I have to stretch out my hand? Because I'm responding to the word of God in faith. How am I going to stretch out my withered hand? You can't. But in the effort, healing happens. I can't, I personally can't, I can't heal anybody. But the heart of God is to heal. But the way healing happens is not just by me going into my prayer closet and praying. It's by, call, by standing and confronting someone who is sick and saying, we're going to believe God. We're going to pray in Jesus' name. Well, then what, what are you doing? I'm stepping out on God's word, which is not a very firm platform. The moment it feels like as you speak it out. But if you leave the natural and you step into the promise of God, it's going to catch you because God has promised. Yeah. I want to challenge you. You want to see good things happen in people's lives? You want to see miracles happen? Don't be passive about it. Lean forward. Declare what God says. Invite people in to experience it. Come on. God's got good things for good people. Fight for the best of your children. Fight for it. Fight for it. Who do I? Fight for it. I don't know. Okay. I'll just talk to myself up here. Uh, also, uh, deception was taking root. God was being blamed for something the enemy did. And I believe that's why Jesus wept as well. It breaks my heart when I see the enemy successful in someone's life in my world. To watch him walk in and deceive somebody and then become angry or bitter or unforgiveness or suspicion or sin or whatever it is, that's a heartbreaking moment because Jesus came so that we could have abundant life, and here now we're taking a step backwards towards survival life because we've walked away from the promise of God. So let me give you a couple of things that I think are valuable to help you to experience better and a better death. Number one, we experience a better death. Let me, let me hit pause just for a second. That being said, with what we know out of Scripture, I can tell you that I'm not afraid of the Granville Monument when I go camping. I'm not terrified of death. I probably would like to go in my sleep after a big dinner with friends in the air conditioning, right, when all is good. The thought of how I will go is not super exciting,
but it will be the most remarkable step forward I've ever taken in my lifetime. And so looking forward down the road as I'm getting older and my days are becoming fewer, there's not this anxiety, there's not this, this uh, because of what Scripture teaches me, I'm able to not only live a better life, but I'm able to approach death from a better perspective that's appropriate, that's biblical, that's in balance. Number one, we experience a better death because we live valuing life as a sacred gift from God that it is. I may not be guaranteed a whole uh, a specific amount of time, but I have this moment it's sacred. I thank God for it. Every moment that you're alive, it's a gift from God. It's sacred. Your life, hear me clear, started at conception. The moment that that biological action between your mother and father took place, there was the breath of God that sparked that biological thing into a supernatural spiritual reality. Your life began there. That is why there is such a pushback in the world that we're living in right now. I don't even get into uh, individual rights, but I will say this. Every life is sacred or no life is sacred. Every life is sacred. And we get that from a biblical perspective. It's revealed in Scripture. Psalm 139 says this. The psalmist speaking to God, you formed me in my inward parts. God did this. God breathed you into existence. Anyone has ever been conceived, you formed me in the inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. That's the work of God. It's not just biology. It's not just science. It is supernatural. It's sacred. God was present. There's not been a person that's ever been conceived where God was like, oh my gosh, where'd you come from? God sparked you into existence. And you were created on purpose and for purpose. God had intentions of life and abundant life. In fact, he sent his son so that you could experience abundant life. It's sacred. goes on to say, I praise you, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Imperfect as I am are things that are lopsided or things that have torn off in the wind or whatever you're experiencing. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. It's shocking to me the attitude about the idea of pregnancy and bringing children into this world. A lot of people that think we shouldn't have kids, you wouldn't want to subject children to this world. We bring our children into this world to make this world a better place. We are not passive about bringing children into the world. We lean forward because we know that our children will carry on the kingdom of God and we're, they're like ther, uh, thermometers or thermostats, rather. We bring a righteous child up to experience the kingdom of God and he steps into the world and he positively impacts it. She positively impacts it every step they take, everywhere they go. It's not about saving someone from a terrible world. It's about impacting a world that needs some help with some good, righteous people who follow Jesus. Amen? Amen. Bring, our kid, bring our kids into the world. We were just not afraid that the world is going to get them. We're like, world, you're in trouble. Our kids are here. We equipped them. We sent them out. One of our kids said to us, hey, I want to go check out this other type of church in the area. I won't name it, but it's definitely not a biblical church. Is it okay if I go? Well, you've been inviting all the kids to go to that church, to our church. I don't have any problem for you going there at all. 
you understand that they don't use the Bible, right? Yeah, why do you want to go? I just want to check it out. I hear other people talk about, oh, no, you can't let your kids in there. They'll get them. Better watch out. The kids we're sending out of our church into the world are there to get the world. Watch out. Our kids are on the way. They're armed with the word of God. They have the spirit of God within them. They're here to make a difference in the world. You can read the rest of that scripture, but your life is sacred. Your life is sacred. Every life is sacred. And if you live with that understanding, it'll have a different, death will have a different perspective. Every life is sacred. We're thankful for what we've been given. Here's the key. Because every life is sacred, we are thankful for what we had. We're not bitter about what we didn't have. It's so important. A person who walks with Jesus realizes the gift they're given, and they're thankful for that gift that they're given. And when that gift is no longer there, they're not angry that they don't have the gift anymore. They're still thankful for the time they had, and they proceed forward with that thankfulness. I just, you know, there's been times where the enemy has worked overtime in my heart and my mind. I um, not to go into all the story, but there was a, a period of time where I was actually afraid of one of my kids dying. None of them are sick or anything, but it's some things that happened in my family, and I felt like, yeah, it would probably be right. I'll, one of my kids are going to die. And remember that feeling, that overwhelming nervousness. Every time the kids were going out to do something, this, this cloud would roll in and just want to lock me down. Like, no, I cannot live like this. God... I'm going to thank you for the time that we have. And if the moment comes where somebody dear to me passes, I'm going to celebrate what we had. I'm not going to allow my grief to eclipse the thankfulness. It's thankfulness for what we had, not bitterness for what we don't have. Amen? Amen. Okay. Let me give you the second slide, point number two. I've got 41 seconds left. Um, we experience a better death because we live viewing death. You about, I'm about to say it. Death is the enemy of God. It is, scripturally. It's the enemy of God. It's not even the tool of God. God created us to live eternally. He warned Adam and Eve, don't eat of that. We don't want death. If you do that, if you disobey, you will experience death. It's not the heart of God. It wasn't the plan of God. It's a reality, and God redeems that, but death is the enemy of God. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Enemy. Jesus has come to conquer his foes, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I mean, I'm probably not going to get a job working for CSI, even though I can usually crack the case on TV before we get to the end. I got a gift, and I let Rowena know regularly that I have it. Like, oh, wait, you just watch this. See? I called it. Because I got this kind of internal CSI thing, which would never pay me a dollar in the real world. You probably have the same gift. We're, we're similar, right? Um. I'm not a CSI, but death, 
bad. Let me investigate those fingerprints for a second. Devil. Life. Good. God. Death bad. Life good. Death bad devil. Life good God. I might not be CSI, but this much the scripture teaches me. Death is the enemy of God. God does not send his angels to come and get grandma to take her home. Jesus weeps when grandma passes because it's the final blow of the enemy. It's a reality, but it is not part of God's heart. It was not part of his plan. Death, hear me, death is the enemy of God. It's his enemy. It's his diabolic enemy. In fact, when you read scripture, he's going to throw not just the devil in the lake of fire. He's going to throw death into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. Do you hear what I said? Scripture, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. We know it's God's enemy. It will be defeated. We are not passive. The presence of death causes us to rise up and fight. I have to stop. The best point. I didn't get to it. We experience a better death because we live viewing or I'm sorry, we experience a better death because we are confident of what awaits us on the other side. Again, I'm a little afraid of how I'm going to go, but ooh, I long for what's on the other side. There's been some great moments here on earth, but they pale in comparison to what we'll experience on the other side. I had one vision in my lifetime, I was praying, and it's like the, he- the heaven and earth went away and I was standing in the presence of God and I can't even describe what I experienced. The level of peace, the level of love, the level of acceptance, the level of knowledge, the clarity, the, 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 the lack of anything evil and it only lasted for a few seconds. In fact, when it was over and I opened my eyes and it was gone, I was angry at God. How could you show me that and make me stay here? However, I got a taste for what the future has. A million scriptures, I'd, I'd, I'm gonna, can I, stand with me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just show you a bunch of them. You look at them. John 14, Jesus went to prepare a place for you. Psalm number 116, precious in the sight of God is your passing. Death's not his friend, but you are. Acts chapter seven, I believe this happens every time. This is what Stephen experienced. He was dying a tragic death. And as he began to pass over, all of heaven appeared and he could see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. I believe that's the first thing you're gonna see. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, be of good courage because if you're away from your body, you will be at home with the Lord. This is speaking to believers. Job chapter 19, Job said, I know my Redeemer lives and, I, and at the last he will stand on the earth after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I will see God in my flesh in the future. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Right now we see heaven through a mirror dimly, 
We see God dimly, but then we're gonna see him face to face. Face to face. Hebrews 9, 27. And just as it appointed for man once to die, after that comes certainly judgment. But I find great comfort in this final verse, Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15, or one through five. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. Back to the garden of Eden where it all started God's intention of walking, living with us. And he goes on to say, he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be that will be with them as their God. Here's the key. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Amen. You won't be sick. You won't have the financial struggles. You won't have the friction with other people. You won't have the heartbreaks. You won't have the bitterness. You won't have the struggle to do the right thing. Why? Because death shall be no more. Amen. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came so that you could have a better life and thereby experience a better death. Let me pray for you. Um, How many of you would say that like in life, there's been some experience that has made this topic of death somewhat challenging in your life? Just being honest. I know looking around, you got your hands raised. I want to especially pray for those of you who've raised your hands this morning, just right where you're at. In a time crunch, they're going to sing, they're going to sing and Jen's going to come back up and we're going to finish our, our time together. But I want to take a moment to pray for those of you who've had that struggle. And what I just want you to simply do is just to put your hand over your chest. And I want to pray over you that God will give you clarity to be able to see the scripture applied to your life, to walk in the freedom of the truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will do what? Set you free. God did not kill your grandpa. God was not sleeping in a corner when your best friend had that tragic accident. Heaven wept. Heaven wept deeper than you because it could see the full context of what was lost. Not just a friend, but the years that have been spoken into life by the creator God, now robbed by the wicked one. And I want to pray that God will help to wash that that wound that's within you to allow you to be strong, to live well, and to understand better moving forward how death works and its role in God's economy, okay? Father, we come to you. I thank you for your word. God, this is certainly a challenging topic but it's impacted all of us. Lord, you are a good God and you desire the very best for your people. We thank you for sending Jesus, gave his life, who died so that we could experience life here on earth and eternal life. And we say yes to that. That is the great transaction. I say yes to it again today, God. I'm so thankful for that provision. Thank you, Jesus, for your death, that in your death, I get to live here and now, and also eternally. But Lord, I pray for hearts that have been, been wounded 
by death here on this earth. Dreams that have been lost, moments that have been robbed, heartbreak that has been very realized. God, I, I pray right now for a washing of your word and a washing of your spirit. Father, help us to see death and what has happened in the past from a proper viewpoint, from what really happened scripturally, what took place. I pray, God, for your touch. I pray for forgiveness to come, your cleansing power. I pray for your people to be able to walk in freedom. In Jesus' name, I pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. Let's sit. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our pastors, leaders, and what we do at C3 Church, visit our website at c3swwa.com.